Welcome to the 29th installment of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Berlin-Lumblan, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, uh, one of the things we've been touching on sort of obliquely um, in passing a couple of times in this podcast is the question of transparency. And transparency, I think, has has, uh, become only more popular with regulators and tech policy analysts and, frankly, tech companies as well for the last couple of, well, I'd say the last decade, it's been an increasing focus on, on the subject of transparency. But but let's talk about what's the so let's talk about the fundamental theory behind why that is a good thing. What what is it that people hope that transparency will accomplish, and and where can we find the roots of this phenomenon, this sort of focus on transparency? Yeah. So, so if you um, have an organization of any kind, actually, and this is not this is not about tech companies. It's actually started a lot of this sort of theory with government. Um, uh, and people wanting to hold government accountable. But if you, if you have an organization that is doing something that affects you in, in life, uh, and then you want uh, to, to make sure that organization is behaving correctly, then the idea of transparency is really all the benefits are sort of seen as twofold. So, so one is that they allow you to find out if that organization has actually been abusing its powers, whatever they may be, and I say typically with government, uh, uh, you know, it'd be kind of abuse like corruption, uh, classic sort of financial corruption, or, or, or you know, using its legal powers inappropriately to to oppress particular segments of the population, etc. So, one is yes, um, by having data available, by having information available, by the government being transparent, we can hold them to account when they do things wrong, and that's sort of based on the notion that unaccountable power will do things wrong. Um, and then the second part is is preventive, where people believe, look, if the transparency is built in, then it actually makes it much less likely that this powerful organization will do wrong, because they'll have an eye on the fact that that data is going to come out at some point, and they're going to get caught. So it's, again, this notion that, uh, that, that powerful organizations will do wrong things, and they're even more inclined to do wrong things if they think, you know, they're going to get off with it, get away with it. Transparency means... A, you can, you can actually find out when they've done the, the bad thing, and B, um, is going to act as a sort of deterrent for the bad thing happening in the first place. So you have actual transparency as sort of an ex-post control on these companies and potential transparency as an ex-ante incentive for them to act in the right way. That's that's roughly how we're thinking about this. And it's, it wasn't only government, was it? I mean, I seem to remember that there's a quote in, in American uh, legal writing that uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant yes. by Louis Brandeis, I, Brandeis, right. I think. Um, he wrote about banks at that point so it was, yeah. he was concerned with big companies and banks and wrote about what publicity can do it's it's one of his his essays or it's one one of his books and so the idea there is that you you um you then have to design a regime of transparency and and that's where we start to run into problems isn't it because what how how do you do that in a way that's effective what are the sort of dimensions of effective transparency design there, there is, um, I guess, the different ways the transparency can occur. So, so the first and so the most obvious one is if an organization has a culture of transparency, then it's going to be transparent. And, and you know, that's not, not infe- unfeasible. I mean, the organizations, for example, political parties, 
will quite often go into election campaigns campaigning precisely on the fact that they are, are going to implement transparency measures. Lots of governments have passed freedom of information laws that that um, require all government information to be put in the public domain. Um, political forces that are campaigning against corruption will have transparency as a as a sort of key objective of theirs so so in in the political sphere it's often you know there are there are sort of forces pressing for transparency as a a political act um and actively how it moves there when you move over to the private sector again it's possible for organizations to have a culture of transparency and you'll see some companies will pride themselves on the fact that they're very open with their customers and they share information uh, but more typically, if we're, you know, candid, more typically, you know, private companies, particularly money-making ones, will tend not to be nearly as transparent as people would like. Um, and there, the mechanisms that can force them to, to do so are, again, firstly, sort of external pressure. Um, so a lot of uh, campaigning organizations w- will, you know, push and, and harass uh, companies into being more transparent and uh, either uh, through through sort of publicity campaigns or or sometimes actually by sort of trying to take legal action against them and that's where you'll get some of these judgments where companies are you know forced to become more transparent uh, th- through legal reasons um, so, so there's that sort of external pressure that, that comes on to companies some of it comes from um, government as well. I mean, governments will put pressure on companies, uh, and sometimes it's, you know, either be more transparent or we'll pass a law to make you more transparent. Which in a, a lot of the online safety legislation is sort of along those lines. A lot of that is, is, you know, you'll see elements of this across the piece saying tech companies need to be more transparent, and if they're not, we're going to force them to do so. But but similarly in areas like banking and, and other critical areas, um, pharmaceuticals very topical at the moment. You know, there are certain data that pharmaceutical companies have to publish. They they have to be transparent about the drugs uh, that they produce and the effects that they have within a, a you know very specific legal framework um so to say the pressure will come from governments or outside parties on companies within government to say it's, typically it's, a, it's, a, it's an area of political debate between the, uh, the different parties um and there will be some who will argue you know government business needs to be private and secret <laughs> um, and then there'll be others you know, uh, challenging them saying no 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 we really need it to be open and public for the, for the interest of the citizens well, there's an interesting question here, I think, about the design of transparency overall, because there is this, um, there's a couple of dimensions here that I think really matter. One of them is the notion of active versus passive transparency, where the active transparency is that you actively publish something about the company that wouldn't normally be easy to find out. I, the, the most sort of clear example of that in my mind is transparency reporting, where, where tech companies started early on to publish transparency reports about the number of law enforcement requests they got for user data or for content takedown or sort of a, an active publishing act of transparency will make this stuff available because we believe people need to see it and have an ability to make their own minds up on whether this is a good or a bad thing. Then passive transparency is more like, you know, um, we publish our code openly and you can look at it if you want. Um, if you if you feel like it, and if so, uh, best of luck to you. If you if you think you're going to understand it, and and, and all of that is happening now. That there that that distinction between active and passive transparency seems really important in in deciding how useful transparency is, doesn't it? 
And, yeah. and I'd like to just get to the point of if everyone isn't transparent, isn't that just the same thing as as nobody essentially being transparent because you're you're under this deluge of information and there's not much you can do with it? I mean, there's a question. It's, it's one of the arguments. I mean, I, I um, uh, think colleagues, former colleagues at Facebook, would have would uh, recognize this and accepted that I was sort of quite a, a strong advocate for transparency and doing more of it. And, w- and one of the reasons for that is actually it's usually um, when people have an information void or a vacuum, they fill it with stuff that is worse than the truth and the reality. And so I just felt like once you've got the stuff out there, a lot of the stuff you get out there is going to be really uninteresting <laughs> once it's published. And actually we had experience of this, um, you know, uh, in another context, I was a member of Parliament in the 1990s and early 2000s, and and uh, people in the UK will recognise this. There was enormous scandal over MPs' expenses, which is the money that was paid from public funds for members of Parliament to run their offices and and um, run two homes because they need to live in two places. And and you know that was a scandal because there were individual uh, records being leaked. And and they got out there and individual claims that looked sort of really interesting and made the headlines. As a result of that, they ended up publishing comprehensively all of the records of all of the expenses of all of the MPs all of the time. And it's just much less interesting once you get it all out there than when you get lots of little individual snippets and insights into something. So I think the same generally applies that that um the you're right, there is a deluge of information. There's a there's I don't think there's a risk that people can't find stuff. I think it's more just that once there's a lot of it, and and once you've got it all, it, it often is less interesting than you thought it was going to be. And so, say I think that's a strong argument for those you know, uh, for those who are advocating for more transparency against those who are skeptical. Um, and again, I, I, I lived the debate. We had the debate at Facebook around uh, releasing those law enforcement numbers yeah. that you talked about, Nicholas. That you know, Google I think was was ahead of the pack. It had got theirs out there, and we were yes, no, yes, no. And I do remember again, people were nervous, saying, "Well, once we put the numbers out there, you know, people are going to ask lots of questions. It's going to be really difficult to explain everything." We did put the report out there, actually driven by the Snowden revelations after Snowden. <laughs> like, like it was, you know, obvious that you had to get the stuff out there, but very few questions were ever asked. I mean, that report is published on a periodic basis. And I think all of the transparency reports of all of the tech companies are now a part of the landscape, but very, very rarely do they provoke you know, much conversational debate. And and there's a reason for this that I think is quite interesting because I was a, as part of briefing these a couple of times um, and, and talking to journalists and politicians about them, etc. And and one of the things that I, I found really interesting was that people weren't quite sure what to make of them. They yeah. saw these numbers, they saw how they worked out, they saw that they were divided over geographies and markets and they sort of, they had some sense. But 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 here's the, here's the thing that I think most people miss. I think most people miss that transparency does not automatically imply legibility. And I think that legibility is really what a lot of people in government and a lot of people wanting to sort of exercise more control over business or government want. And it sort of it it goes back to there's this book by a guy called I think it's James Scott, uh, Seeing as a State where he argues that what the state wants to do is that it wants to make all the systems that it's looking at legible. 
It wants to be able to read them, and then it wants to obviously be able to also write. It's not a read-only system <laughs> and to change them. But but this distinction between transparency and legi- legibility has been sort of gotten lost, and, and so we're stuck with transparency that is not always obvious how to interpret, and that creates a potential for harm. There's an essay by Lessig that suggests that if we just provide transparency without also leaning into legibility, we will only confirm the suspicions of those who require transparency in the first time because yeah it sort of I think it's sort of true that transparency comes from a stance of suspicious uh, suspiciousness or suspicion where you where you're thinking that something is up or something could be up or something even should be up because they're so powerful and they're doing all this stuff and you require transparency and if you get transparency but no legibility you're just going to read and interpret wherever you get to confirm your suspicion. So does transparency really work if that's the mental model we're moving in? I think, it's, again, the point you've made is exactly right. It's, it's What do we mean by transparency? Do we mean just publishing a number? Or do we mean publishing a number and additional information to help you make sense of it? And I was certainly in the latter camp, but one of the things I argue for, and I think is there still in the uh, Facebook transparency reports, was a little bit of commentary. <laughs> That's all it takes, you know. Oh, we did we, too, yeah. Yeah, we've seen the, the you know the requests come in from law enforcement. Uh, if they are mostly related to particular types of offence, and you're worried that people are going to assume they're a different type of offence, you know, then why not just write that? <laughs> you can just put a bit of commentary that goes. We got these requests. They largely relate to, you know, child sexual offences or whatever it is uh, from this particular country, and that just helps people uh, contextualise it and make sense of it. So I, I think it's it's um, publishing raw data is often the the challenge, and 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 again, I think that's sometimes the one of the sort of failings that there are various reasons why companies are not transparent. I think it's a break, go through those. So, so one is they don't actually have the data. Uh, people think they do, but they don't have the data in that particular set of data or in that particular format. Um, the second is that they are, you know, potentially they think the data is going to be embarrassing for them. Uh, that's that's a, you know they do, that's the suspicion most people have. They just don't want to publish it because they think it's embarrassing. The third is they think the data is fine, um, but they think people are going to misinterpret it and not understand it. <laughs> And, and therefore, it's not really embarrassing. It shouldn't be embarrassing, but it will be because people will interpret it wrongly. And then there's other reason. Fourth reason, I think, is is that there is some kind of legal bar. There's some kind of legal restriction on them publishing data. And that could be to do with data protection law or um, finance law. You know, you, um, companies can't just sort of put all information out all of the time if it's market sensitive, for example. So there's a, a bunch of sort of legal things. And then perhaps the fifth, and uh, uh, I think in the way the, the some more in, most interesting areas, if you believe that release of the data will cause harm, that's something we keep coming back to. Mm. Um, and harm and illegality are not necessarily the same thing. So you've got those different reasons. So first, you may not have the data. Literally, it doesn't exist in that form. Second, you've got the data, but you've looked at it and gone, oh, that's embarrassing. I'm, I want to hide it, <laughs> which is the classic suspicion that people have. Third, You've got the data, but you just think it's too difficult and complicated for you know ordinary mere mortals out there to make sense of, and they're going to get it all wrong. Uh, fourth, you have some kind of legal restriction, um, and again, people probably won't believe you when you say that. They think that you're just citing the law because you're embarrassed, uh, so they think you're citing reason four when you're really in reason two. And then, and then I say the fifth is you've actually come to a view that some kinds of data, if you release them, would 
would actually be harmful or lead to harm. And therefore, uh, even if you legally could release them, you don't think ethically that you should. I think that last category is so important and so misunderstood. I mean, it's, some some cases of it is really well understood. And one of the one of the cases I think about that, that most people would agree on is that if you're publishing all of the criteria for and the entire um, sort of description of the algorithm that ranks search results, you know that they will be gamed. Transparency in this case leads to gaming the algorithm. And, and when you talk people through this and you show them how a search engine optimization works and and you you sort of really uh, bring them along with you so they start seeing the internet as this adversarial space where there's always somebody competing for your attention or somebody competing for 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 um, for different kinds of, of space in the in the market I think most people then understand that releasing finely tuned high resolution transparent data about how search is ranked is not going to work. And and that same thing, though, occurs in so many other places, too. If you, for example, start releasing extraordinarily granular data about how uh, different kinds of groups are manipulating social media, uh, you're essentially saying, this is what we know you're doing, and you're incentivizing them to invent new ways or use other ways that are not currently being detected. What's the what's the best? So this, this mm. seems to imply that another design dimension of, of transparency is actually granularity or the resolution of the data. And, and yes. that's something that's quite interesting because that, that seems to, in turn, imply that we can't just talk about transparency. We should talk about the inverse of harm, the utility of transparency, right? What's the benefit of, of the transparency that we're releasing? And that benefit varies with resolution in a really interesting way, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, another example of where that harm kicks in is um, things like, like child sexual abuse material. So the companies, all the major companies have what they call hash databases, databases of uh, illegal images that have been hashed. They've made a fingerprint of them, and they use that to to scan those images or, or remove those images from their system, stop them sort of getting uploaded in the first place. And people are sometimes suspicious and say, you know, we, we think that you're r- removing perfectly legal fine content. You're, there's some kind of abuse going on in these systems, and they want to know they think you should be transparent about all the content that's in the system. And you can't. I mean, there are things you can do. It actually brings us to another dimension, which is there's there's real transparency, which is we make something public and then everybody can have a look at it and everybody can take a view on whether it's right or not. And then sometimes there's there's sort of audit auditability. Uh, sometimes you may invite auditors in, but only a very select and very trusted group of auditors come in. And, and then you have to trust the auditors. You have to, it's saying, you know, you have to either trust the company or trust the company and its auditors, but you're not going to be able to, you know, just see what's going on uh, yourself as an ordinary member of the public. And something like those, say, hash database of really, really bad content, I think fall into that category where either you're going to have to trust the company or you might reasonably ask for it to be audited. So there is a a sort of private form of transparency. But I just don't think, you know, there's a sort of case, the cost or the harm benefit case adds up to say, let's make all of that data, you know, entirely public where it can then sort of be taken off and abused in other ways. Um, Either people just getting their hands on the bad content uh, or, you know, figuring out that if they uh, change the bad content to something slightly different, uh, it's not going to get caught. You know, they start to use that database to reverse engineer how they can avoid the filters. Um, so that would be just a prime example of one where it is a, a, a sort of harm benefit equation. And you can see the potential harm to high, the potential benefits 
uh, appear to be low. I mean, there's a suspicion, yes, it could be abused, but there's no real evidence of a sort of large-scale abuse. Actually, on the you know, on on one area where I think the benefit is or the equation is much more finely balanced is around the criteria for taking content down generally. So, for example, Facebook used to have a list of banned organizations and a list of banned words like racial slurs. And we used to debate a lot whether or not you should put those in the public domain. And part of the counter argument is, well, people could just game the system and you know, use a slightly different racial slur. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, the way I, I saw it was, look, it, it, you know, I think there the benefit of knowing <laughs> that, that these organizations are banned and this, these words are banned is actually very significant to the user population. And if those bans are reasonable, they're going to be supportive of it. And and gaming the system, if gaming the system means people don't use those racial slurs because they know that's that win, right? that's kind of a win. So and people don't don't try and promote those organisations. So instead of you know having those organisations keep popping up and keep getting whacked down, and people going, why have I been thrown off for supporting organisation X? Well, if organisation X is banned, just publish it. And so as I say, I think there's a sort of spectrum here, but I certainly think um, there could be a lot more transparency around what's being prohibited outside of these very, very sensitive areas, like, you know, the worst of the worst kind of content where I think the the balance tips in favor of a certain amount of secrecy, potentially with auditability. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and that category is also the information security category. You don't want to talk about how you're being attacked, for example, because that would be insanity. It would show how you can defend yourself. And then you would give essentially a roadmap to new inventive attacks to your attackers in information security. So I think that category is a clear category where there's more harm than benefit. I'm intrigued or interested in, in sort of the notion that we should see more transparency around content guidelines because i think i think when most tech companies have at some point seen some of their guidelines leak and there's been a huge outcry around that and so so you're removing this it's too much or it's too little or because when these these guidelines are examples of when they're not legible when you're not understanding how they're used so you're just seeing the guidelines but you're not seeing the context nor are you being able to infer the use they do look sometimes they look very rough or they look very sort of blunt in in how they're written but that's by necessity because they have to be you have to make decisions at that level you have to decide you know uh, as you said in an earlier uh, episode, you have to decide whether or not you're you're actually going to be able to see that nipple or not. That's sort yes. of the, that's the level you're at, and 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 I I sort of I, I wonder if if sharing those guidelines without sh- also making sure that they're legible is a net improvement or if it just creates more suspicion. Yeah, so I think this this is one of those that falls into my um, third category of information that companies have got could put out there but are worried that people will misinterpret and 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 i actually think this is probably the biggest category of data and the one where um you know this does get argued out inside the companies uh, often it's the policy people like i was and you were saying let's get it out there because you know we're the ones getting beaten up every day for for being secretive um but it's our colleagues who are skeptical often because they they can see how much work it will take to make them legible as you describe it and and that's actually right and 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 again this though goes to the heart of why uh, transparency is good that sunlight is the best disinfectant this this saying that look by putting them out there they will get criticized and then you'll have to make them better <laughs> is, is the logic by keeping them private it allows them to be a bit 
crappy <laughs> frankly you can cut corners and do things in a slightly crappy way if you're keeping it private and um and and again people wouldn't necessarily express it that way but that's the reality it's like i'm really well, busy it's a, it's a principle we know from yeah that's yeah. a principle we know from information security right uh yeah. all bugs are shallow to enough eyes right so you yes. you try to make sure that if you if you're not publishing your crypto it's probably snake oil or it's or your your sort of cryptographic algorithms yeah but if you publish it everyone can test it and you're transparent about yeah. it that's the first point that which you can rely on it but that requires very little legibility the sort of the the cryptographic algorithm it's 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 much harder with a deck of like 250 pages of instructions to those who do user policy where the legibility is is it would require yeah. hours for somebody to understand how this is being used that's right and and so you're right those 250 pages um, have to become a thousand pages when you put them in the public domain because each of those pages requires two or three pages to explain what's going on and what the intent was of that particular policy and i think that's that's often the challenge and i saw that again and again it's like you know we've got this data um uh we think we're doing okay we think our policies make sense we think we're taking down the right amount of hate speech for example but you know if we go out there and start publishing it we're going to have to do a whole load of work to kind of explain exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And nobody's got time to do that work. They're all on the front line dealing yeah. with incoming. Uh, and again, that's, this is something that is really hard to communicate ex externally. Sometimes I think, um, do my usual warning. I am not asking for any sympathy for large tech companies. Uh, no one no, no, no. will ever have sympathy for them. We, but we, we have no sympathy at all. No, so. sorry, but, we can, but we can describe the reality of being there, which is, you know, people are on the front line dealing with the latest crisis. And if you say to them, you know, someone is, thinks someone, actually the starting point, someone thinks we're doing a terrible job on X and I would like you to stop doing your day job and take a whole load of time to go and find some data that, you know, may not be necessarily easy to get hold of and then put it out there and then spend a lot of time explaining that data in order to prove that you're doing your job correctly. <laughs> it's not a very compelling kind of argument. And I'm sure you had it and I had it lots of times. Yeah. I had a lot of sympathy. I have colleagues who spend their days, you know, trying to stop terrorists, get on the platform or stop, you know, child abuse, taking all of this kind of stuff. And, and I did feel, I, I felt I needed to ask them to come and produce data and explain things and talk to policymakers and the public. But I always did, so did feel like a little hesitant to go too far if they said, look, I'm just really, really busy doing my day job. And, 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 uh, and, it, and not, not just being busy, because there's another aspect of this that also gets lost quite a lot. And, and that is that, that um, the reluctance I got from a lot of my colleagues to, to come out there and speak in detail about what you're doing is that this is such moving, uh, it's such a moving yeah. target that if you sort of, if you say, here's how we're doing this, here's how we're thinking about it. Then when you wake up next day, you go like, oh, I maybe need to tweak that. Then you're sort of stuck because transparency also, as you said, transparency leads to accountability, but accountability to what you were transparent about at point T in time, which means that you have to, to sort of in some way explain then why you changed or why you didn't do what you would be predicted to do from the transparency that you showed earlier. So there's like one function there where transparency, it, it really ties you to the mast of the ship and you you have to sort of continue doing what you did that's one part of it the other part of it is i think i think uh, uh, there's there's also this notion of um of sausage making 
I mean, there's this old yes. quote that there, there are two things you do not want to watch how they're being made, and one is sausage and the other is law. I think it's yes. usually ascribed to Bismarck, but I don't know if that's true. And, and in that case, the transparency uh, problem is actually uh, we're doing something that everybody enjoys the result of, but the process of which is going to look really ugly. And I think that's that's sort of also related to this. You draw attention to the process where the result is what people are really evaluating you on. And then suddenly you have to be evaluated on both the outcome and the process, and that messes things up because they're not the same. That's and right. I, I think that's also, I don't think that's a trivial uh, problem. I actually think that's a real conflict. Yeah, it's, it's not, you're right, it's non-trivial. And I think one of the other fears about transparency is that you then do get locked in. And, and you, you reminded me when you talk about the legislative process, I mean, you know, legislative time scales are four or five years from someone deciding there ought to be a law on something to the law coming in, typically. I mean, they're long timescales when you get a new government occasionally it has a kind of little flurry and gets a bunch of laws through in a year or so but you know these are <laughs> and then once once they've done that law they go away and they come back a few years later so one um, uh, notable exception is immigration law in the uk where they seem to have to have a bill every year but i think that's more political than anything else there's always some <laughs> kind of like, immigration bill you know um but i say that that legislative timetable is generally you know a multi-year process um, companies may be changing their policies and things, their policies and their processes daily or weekly, and and I think again I, something I experience is a fear of uh, yeah well if we put our policies out now, uh, people are going to think that's it they're they're going to be debating the stuff we've put out into the public domain for the next six months, we're going to be changing it next week, aren't they going to be annoyed that we've changed something while they're still debating it? Uh, and, and just that difference in timescale uh, between your sort of classic uh, political accountability timescale, you know, uh, come up with a law over several months, scrutinize the law, pass the law, assess the impact of the law, come back to the law, you know, th this sort of like methodical long-term timescale versus, oh my God, something's blown up somewhere on our system quick get a group together figure out what changes we need to make and get them out the door yeah. and uh, and so when you make that there is a fear that if you make that process too transparent i say people will then start to hold you back and ask you to slow down uh because they want to try and keep up with it and, and it's not just something blew up. It's it's someone blew up. It's somebody yeah. did something to attack the systems in a new way. You always discover new forms of abuse, and the the it's it's one of those red queen problems. It takes all of the running you can do to remain in the very same place. If you want to have some kind of quality of content control or moderation, you need to do a ton of work all the time, which means that you need to change these policies. You're afraid of being locked in, but you're also afraid of being ineffectual because you're not going to be able. If you can't change your policies, you're not going to be able to meet those new threats that you know are going to come down the line because they always do and so you're not going to to be able to do that that brings us to, to sort of an interesting an interesting uh, limit of transparency i think which is sort of being transparent about something that changes frequently something that morphs and evolves very quickly is not necessarily that helpful that's one of the limits of transparency another limit of transparency to me seems to be complexity the pure complexity yes. of a system what what would you say? What, how would you deal with that? What are there systems, for example, were there systems at Facebook that you could have provided full transparency to, but very few people would have had any chance to achieve legibility in? Yeah, I mean there are so so the systems you know that learn about bad content and remove it 
are, unless you are a machine learning expert, incredibly difficult to understand. But I think you can, there are elements of it that you can sort of put into the public domain. So, so one thing that, and I went through an exercise, we actually brought some French policymakers in, uh, actually uh, judges, regulators, policymakers, we brought them in and worked work through a whole program with them where we tried to explain how all these systems work. And that was a really interesting exercise in transparency. I thought create a lot of mutual understanding and and really um, helped us to understand that we're on the same side trying to deal with bad people doing bad things whereas it started from a position of kind of real mutual um, distrust I think uh, mm. um, you know, <laughs> the company thinking these politicians just want to interfere and they don't know what they're doing and the politicians thinking these companies don't care uh, and in fact you know there was m- much more sort of mutual agreement when we did that we did understand that without going into the details of the how the Emma the machine learning algorithms worked we could focus on um, particular aspects. There's these sort of notions of uh, precision and recall, the notions of like when you, when you build an algorithm, you can tailor it to say, look, basically I want to make sure I get all of the bad stuff and I don't care if I have a certain percentage of false positives because the bad stuff is so bad. Look, if we take out a bit of, you know, harmless content, that's fine. Or you can sort of go in the other direction and go, look, I really, really want to avoid any false positives. I'm prepared to let some of the bad stuff go through the net in order to minimize the amount of harmless content that I remove. So these are sort of quite interesting concepts. And for a regulator or government there, they give you something to talk about because you, you say like, yeah, we've agreed this is the bad content, terrorist content. And now when we talk about your algorithm, the most important thing we kind of want to understand from a policy point of view having understood the content it's going after is, you know, the extent to which it is tailored to make sure that the bad content is really all removed versus the extent to which it's tailored to make sure you're not inadvertently removing harmless content. Um, so that those kind of concepts, I think, are really important for transparency. And then, and then yeah. they then become generally applicable as opposed to the very detailed concepts of, you know, um, uh, if pixel color X uh, is next to pixel of color Y, then do whatever, you know, which is the sort of real detail of the, the how the thing works. Also granularity and resolution again, right? And, mm. and I think this is this is interesting because you're sort of bringing, you're, you're bringing a lot of things in here. One is that transparency and legibility ultimately should translate into explainability, which is a yes. huge area, right? Where we're talking about explainability, specifically of complex systems like machine learning systems or different kinds of artificial intelligence systems. So so in a, in a sense, what started with transparency is slowly morphing to explainability. And that's, that's a reasonable evolution, given that we just said that transparency doesn't imply natural legibility. So it seems that if, if we're sort of predicting going forward where, where transparency requirements will go, it seems reasonable that more and more of the transparency requirements will then be coupled with explainability in some way, that you need to be able to explain why? What's the motivation behind these system? And that brings us to another point that you made that I thought was really important. You talked about, about uh, auditability, but but one way to, to sort of cut that, if you want to think about design dimensions in, in transparency design, is to say it's about audiences. So how hmm. should you segment audiences for transparency? What's, what's the point with user transparency versus... Yeah regulated transparency versus what, how, how should we think about this? So, so you're right. They're going to be very different. And I think one of the areas of tension, which if people follow this in the news, they'll have seen it is, is around one particular audience, which is academics who want to be able to 
effectively um, uh, audit, I mean, study what is taking place on on platforms for um, you know perfectly uh, good research purposes. So, so you've got a group, of, as I say, of people who are academic researchers, uh, and as they'll have a particular set of data requirements. They want kind of raw unadulterated data because that's the the basis of the academic method uh, if you if you if somebody else has kind of filtered stuff before they get it then they can't really do their sort of first principles research uh in in many cases um there are regulators who actually i think have in in a lot of ways very similar requirements to academics the difference is that they may have a legislative uh, stick with which to beat companies in order to get the data out of them. So re- I think actually regulators will want two things. So one is that they will want, I think, um, sort of higher level performance data from companies, uh, as well as having the ability to get raw data if they don't trust the performance data. Um, so, so I think just to keep things simple for regulators, a lot of time will want the companies to have processed the data for them and given them some headline stats, but I say they'll want to so go underneath the hood. Give an example. So for example, the, the turnaround time for takedown of terrorist content. Would exactly. That be one? Yes. Yeah. So they, they would say, you know, we want you to report to us on a regular basis, say how much terrorist content you took down, how quickly you took it down, etc. Um, so it's often going to be a sort of a metric around what they did. And Outcome-oriented metrics, so exactly. really looking at the performance. Okay, yeah, and and they'll, so they'll have a, a metric like that, and they'll want to have the reserve right to go in and check if they think that the company lied uh, and they didn't do what they did. Whereas an academic who is studying online terrorist content is more likely to say, I want the whole corpus of stuff that you took down. Uh, and I, I want to know who saw it. And I want to know, you know, a lot of granular detail in order to be able to try and understand the impact of that terrorist content. So it's a, it's a different kind of request. If, if you, you know, some academic work will, would work on the base of, yes, well, just how many pieces of content did you take down? How quickly? Um, but actually, that's probably not going to answer the most interesting questions. That's much more of a regulator type question. Yeah. Did, yeah. you know, did you did you meet a performance target? Academic is going to be asking why questions. The regulator sort of what questions. The academic is more likely to be asking why questions and why questions, you know, or how. Uh, you know, that's much more likely to involve. And, and they also need data. replicability to to be. Yeah. To, I mean, that's that's something that's really important with science. If if I can't replicate your results, um, they mean nothing. And if I don't have access to the data, I can't replicate the results. Now there there's there is a lot of. So you you start to say that there this is a controversial issue. Where so outline the contours of the controversy for us. Yeah, I mean it's it's largely and again I'll surround. I'm working with um, some academics in an organisation called the European Digital Media Observatory, in which I'm a um, uh, unpaid uh, member of the board. So I'm trying to sort of help uh, uh, enable some of this access. But the, the frustration I think primarily is. Look, if you're if you're an academic who's you know genuinely interested in the welfare of society, you've got some really interesting research proposals. You're looking at we'll talk about what sort of flavor of the month that has been for the last sort of year or two, which is something like misinformation. You, you know, you you believe that the best way for you to do that is for you to be able to access significant amounts of data at quite a granular level to know what misinformation was being circulated, who saw it, what kind of study, what, what kind of effects it might have had on them and so on. Um, and and you feel like you're a trusted party and that you should have access to that data. When you go to the companies, 
uh, and it'll vary from company to company. Um, we should be sort of upfront. Someone like Twitter is 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 relatively more straightforward because most data on Twitter was published uh, with a view to it having an entirely public audience. Um, but if you go to other social media companies like Facebook and Instagram, where a lot of the data was not published to entirely public audience, uh, the, the academics have been struggling to get their data out of them uh, directly. Uh, um, and there are some mechanisms for doing that, but they've been frustrated. They felt it's not gone far or fast enough. And in some cases, what they've done is find their own methods for collecting data, not through the companies, but through people's web browsers, for example. And there they've fallen foul of the terms of service of some of those companies, particularly, again, notably Facebook, who have said, look, you know, scraping data, as they regard it, or taking data in this way um, is against our terms of service, and we're not going to allow you to do that. And it arguably runs up across uh, concerns around privacy as well, because there are people who have not chosen to share their data with researchers rather than being asked to. But the researchers seem to have a compelling point here. I mean, how should we learn about the, the social media world we live in if we can't do research on the data? Isn't there, isn't there something that can be done to sort of provide access? I mean, uh, um, there is some work taking place. I've actually, again, through, through this European Digital Media Observatory, we've got a working group uh, now set up under, um, uh, being led by a US academic who works in this area, a US-based academic, and, and that is trying to look at some of these data protection, these privacy law questions, because they, they are real. Again, it's one of those where people say, well, you're, you're deciding the privacy law question. Well, no, no they actually are real. Um, yeah. And again, we just need to step back to others and go, look, if... if Yes, if it's a you know well motivated, highly ethical researcher doing research in the public interest, uh, probably most of us would feel comfortable with our data going to them, um, but not necessarily everybody. And so, if 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 you're creating a mechanism where everybody's data is going without individual granular consent, so you know all of somebody's feed, and and again a social <clears throat> media feed, that's not. You, even if you say, look, I'm happy to share my social media feed with these researchers, the content in my feed is not my content. <laughs> it, it belongs to all of my friends. And they haven't necessarily consented to my content going to that uh, researcher. And again, we'll have different views. Um, there's the optimal kind of scenario where it's a highly trusted researcher. Um, but what if the researcher was for a you know, think tank or an academic department that's aligned with political forces that I dislike. And the reason they're doing the research is to try and, you know, prove something. Or I feel the reason they're doing it is to try and prove something that is, you know, hostile to my own political interests, either prove that misinformation has no effect because they, you know, are a view that we need to be super libertarian about it, or trying to prove that it's really serious and should be shut down. Uh, and you know everyone's speech should be restricted uh and again there are typical academic research are completely independent it's just sort of follow the data but there's a lot of other organizations who would claim research a right of access who actually have an agenda and and how do you sort that out is one of the big challenges how do you make sure that you know something which appears entirely reasonable which is data going to people acting in the public interest doesn't end up being abused in a way where as a user of the service you're you're going hang on a minute you know hey facebook you let my data go to them um and we have we have that experience cambridge analytica is the standard experience where where you know everyone i think agrees that facebook should not have allowed the data to go to cambridge analytica who presented themselves as a research organization um i, I know some of the research saying well you, you're throwing cambridge analytica at us but 
like it's real. <laughs> I was there. It was real. The organi- the company let data go to people who said, "I'm a whatever they said they were, some psychological research center in Cambridge," and really had a contract with politicians and was trying to you know do profiling to assist political yeah. campaigns. How do we make sure that doesn't happen again? Uh, and the way to do it, I think there is a solution, but the solution. Um, will not involve complete open access to data because by definition, if it's complete open access, the Cambridge Analyticas have access just like everyone else, but it will be some kind of um, access with a gatekeeper, with people signing up to particular standards, uh, with sort of codes of practice. And that's what this working group is looking at. So like, yeah, and, and, what and, and, would a code of practice look like that would... You know, right, manage all of this and make it reasonable for everybody. Universities have had this for some time. The ethical boards that are looking at the different kinds of research proposals, for example, and saying this is a go or not a go. And and there seems to be institutional solutions here. As as often we come back to this notion of institutional innovation that needs to follow yeah. follow the changes in in the in the landscape at large. But there there seems to be another another interesting dimension here that I know we discussed a couple of times uh, way back when um, at Google, and that was that there's also also such a thing as storing this data and then making it transparent uh, in a number of years, sort of allowing time to be a dimension of your transparency design and say, okay, we'll preserve and store this data so people can go and really research what happened, but we're going to put an embargo on the data for 10 or 20 years because we think it's it's sort of, that's, that's a reasonable balance between privacy and the value of the data. And, you know, there are things there that you can do. You can document document what's being taken down. Chilling effects is a transparency effort uh, that I think have changed their name now. I, I don't know mm. the new name, but... Uh, where Luminate. You, uh, right? Yes, L- Lumus. Lum, Lumen? Lumen? Yeah. Lumen, 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 yeah. Lumen, yeah. And so I think the, the idea there was to document what's actually being taken down. Like there are negative versions of Wikipedia, articles mm. that have been banned. And and there's a real value in that, but it can also lead to different kinds of abuse. If you, if you have a list of everything that's been taken down, that's... That's obviously a really interesting list of people who have nefarious purposes. But but what about time there as a dimension? Because mm. time also plays into transparency overall. If we don't do anything to store or preserve the data, then transparency disappears in bit rot because of yeah. the data just disappearing naturally, hard drives failing, people deleting. So there's like an upper bound of transparency in terms of how long the technology can actually store something too. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we add that dimension to our transparency design? I think there, there are two dimensions, and we'll, we'll cover the second. So there's time and anonymity, and we'll come on yeah. to the second one in a minute. But on the time one, actually, the t- time works in both directions. So you're right, there are, there are data where, um, if we're thinking about that balance of harm versus benefit, the, the harm-benefit um, balance of immediate release is on the harm side and therefore you shouldn't do it but that does change over time and so the benefits of being having access to that data in two or three years time will outweigh the harms because the harms are reduced with time yeah. so you're right there'll be some categories of data where that would be appropriate um but then equally at the other end of the spectrum there's data where the benefit only happens if the data is released in a super timely way and that would be something like elections related data again yeah. the pressures are all in the other direction if you want to see election ads you know seeing them six months after the election is not particularly <laughs> useful you want to see them sort of at the time that they're published and there the benefit uh, is massively in favor 
of uh, immediate release. And so I think that's one dimension. Again, and perhaps no surprise as I, uh, a recurrent theme of saying that when people sit around the table and recognize they've got a shared problem, I think they can actually come to some quite good decisions. So there may be data where researchers are frustrated, but if they sat around the table with the people who've got the data and they talked it through, they would come to a reasonable consensus on you know what's the time scale where this sort of benefit harm equation is optimal for for a particular set of data and that's going to vary from data item to data item now just knowing that it's preserved seems important too because i think that's that's another concern that researchers quite rightly raise which is you know if if we are not asking for this data now who knows if it'll be around in 6 months or a year because there's no there's no general requirement to retain data and in fact if anything legislative uh, pressures are working in the other direction right for deletion. absolutely yeah, yeah. If, if you're in, I'm particularly in the social media world, you're under pressure all of the time to get rid of the old data. Uh, so, so you know, and it's very clear if you if you're not, you've got data protection authorities breathing down your neck, saying why are you hanging on to this data when you no longer have a business reason. Um, and there are, there are of course sort of exemptions for research and academia and things, but but again, just your normal run of the mill you know, social media type data, for example, uh, if it's no longer in use, um, if the user sort of said they don't want to keep it anymore, then there isn't a valid reason under data protection law. If you just sit on it for the next five years, you you would have to construct a, a specific mechanism for um, storing it with specific uh, legitimate reasons for that storage. Um, so I think people, again, are going to have to think quite hard about that. Uh, and, and it may be something like... Um, sample data again academics will will uh be able to 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 discuss like what kind of sampling is most appropriate but you can imagine again for these very large volume services uh perhaps the solution is that you have a certain amount of sampled data that is stored and locked in a vault somewhere that can be brought out later where that sample is enough to answer interesting questions that you might be asking in five or ten years but isn't requiring you to <laughs> store the entirety of the contents of Facebook forever. Mm. Uh, where, where again, I mean, never mind the sort of cost and expense, but the risk of that as a uh, sort of potential um, hackable data object, I think, might might not justify that storage. Yeah. So, from the first principles of transparency as ex post accountability and ex ante incentive to do the right thing to a number of different design dimensions. We talked about, you know, designing across audiences, across time. We talked about the granularity and resolution of transparency and how important that is. We have talked about active, passive, how it transforms itself from from sort of transparency to legibility into the demands that we're seeing more and more frequently about explainability. Now, if you were to hazard a guess, where do you think transparency is heading in the next couple of years? Where, where do you think we'll see more requirements for transparency or perhaps explainability um, legislatively? Yeah, I, I think the direction of travel yeah, has to be all in favor of more transparency. I mean, occasionally you get these moments where there's an attempt to row backwards. And we've had that in the UK with pe- people sort of criticizing the freedom of information legislation. Actually, we only brought in in the uh, first Blair Parliament in the late 90s. I was part of that and bringing that legislation in. Um uh, then you occasionally get people kind of going, we want to row backwards. But I think, you know, the direction of modern society is in favor of more transparency. It's quite hard. It's like, you know, arguing for less democracy, <laughs> arguing for less transparency is is not, I think, necessarily a winner. Um, I think what we will see uh, is some more pressure uh, for transparency to be built into systems. Again, because they've been digitized, 
there isn't the argument. A lot of the arguments used to be, well, it's too expensive or difficult to do things. Well, actually, now it's not. And and so one area I'm also looking at around sort of government accountability. So over the last year and a half or so, most governments in the world have been dishing out COVID-related grants. You know, that's a really – and spending a lot of money on COVID-related contracts. You know, they, those have all happened through digital systems it's really, really in the public interest to understand where that money went, how it was spent, to be able to analyse that. And so, so I think there's a lot of pressure for things like that in the public sector for uh, more data to be made more more open. Um, I think on the private company side of things, I think the pressure is largely through legislation. So pri- private companies are under pressure externally, um, but certainly my, my experience uh, was that you know, even where a company sort of gets the idea that it should be more transparent, it's in their interest, it's still quite hard to do because this sort of prioritization questions, absent legislation and absent a legislative pressure to do so. And so I, I think absent standards. That's a, that's and, a thing yeah. that's sort of what you, what you just said made me think of because I think standards yeah. are super important. That also makes it possible to do it faster and in a comparable way. Uh, it increases sort of cross-transparency legibility in a way that makes it useful to compare company A with company B. Uh, because that's another thing that we haven't talked about. Yeah. But having said that, I actually think I think the standards may be one of the uh, big weaknesses of the legislative approach because um, the systems that the companies have are so different. You'll you'll yeah. end up sort of going for lowest common denominator, and then companies will like produce data for that standard, but yeah, it's not the fair. most interesting data. So I actually do think that that's one of the areas that really needs to be legislated for carefully. You need to kind of say what's the intent of the transparency, and for a particular company. What do we need them to give us to to realise that intent? Um, there's a, there is a risk, and I've seen some. I've like, well, tell us how many political ads you took down. You know, fine. I mean, companies will do that if they have to do that, and that's what the law says. But that may not be nearly as interesting if you're worried about influence on an election as something else that's happening on that platform. So, so anyway, point. but but yeah. I think it will be a legislative. I think in in the business world it will be legislative, and we've seen it with things like financial services. You know, over the years, banks were big black holes way back when they could do what they liked, and then every time there's a sort of reform of financial services legislation, it pretty much you know always will come with additional transparency requirements, safeguard requirements. When you sign up for financial products now, you you're forced to read, you know, pages and pages of information about how every fund has performed. You know, that wasn't the case like 10 or 15 years ago. It's just like, buy my fund, it's great. You know, so I think we're just going to see, uh, follow, we'll follow the same track, I think, in in tech as financial services have followed, where each round of legislation will have more and more requirements in it. And also require more and more time of us. And so legibility will disappear just on account of actually not having the time to take part of all of the stuff that's being transparent with us. So we end up in that sort of attention space again, where transparency runs into the attention boundaries of the modern consumer or citizen. And so there's 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 a tension there, isn't there? That's why I think standards are so important, because they introduce, they introduce the ability to do coarse-grained comparison across different fields. But you're right, they're also quite useless if if you're if you're actually looking for real effects across very different services comparing facebook yeah. with with instagram with youtube with search is the lowest common denominator is going to be quite uninteresting i agree yeah but you're right, um, but i think i think what we'll see is the classic pendulum where where the requirements will be you know produce more and more and more information and it'll be less and less useful or more and more data which will be less and less useful as information and then there'll be another round of legislation which sort of then says, and here's the simplifying thing. 
yeah. and uh, and here's now the new. And I think again with financial services, we've seen that it sort of it balloons the disclosures balloon, and then there's a new piece of legislation that says, and now you must have the simple meta disclosure <laughs> that, that tells you about all the other disclosures in a really simplified way. Well, but that's that's natural in a sense because I think yeah. a, another sector of the economy where we've seen this is is the energy sector where the sort of the demands to be green, the demands to be environmentally friendly, etc., uh, required an enormous amount of transparency around how much you actually were producing in terms of pollution, and and at some point that became illegible to people, and you started to design transparency for ranking. Yes. be able to score and rank and that's sort of where transparency probably is heading to in the future towards more clear scoring mere certification ranking that kind of institutional way of providing something that's at a glance understandable but might be less sort of informative than than one would expect yes exactly and then as you, as you say that and talk about those standards those rankings it then Reminds us uh, uh, that you know part of the system is going to have to involve the checks. I'm just thinking Volkswagen here and the emissions standards. Yes, and uh, you know again, which just highlights the risk uh, sometimes that you then end up. Uh, in that case, I think very deliberately, consciously subverting the standard. Um, in other cases, it'll just be working to the standard, whether it's right or not. But in that case, I think that's perhaps the biggest example of corporate, yeah. you know, subversion of a standard that we've had in recent years, at least. Where the incentive didn't work to create ex ante good behavior because of the enormous amount of stuff being produced, I think. You could hide yeah. in the noise to a certain extent if you were Volkswagen, and then you, until you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, and until somebody, of, uh, somebody did the work to test, to double check, and not trust uh, the official published data. Uh, that's such an important point too, actually, and it might be the, the point we'd, we'd yeah. end on, which is uh, transparency without a recipient, without somebody who actually does the work, is not going to cut it. It's not yeah. going to be helpful at all. I think that's exactly. a, a very good point. The guardians, the watchdogs. But who watches the guardians? Anyway, I, yes. <laughs> I think that's very good. And and we can end on a, on a sort of book recommendation note. I don't know if you've read this one. I, I don't know if we've discussed it. But anyone interested in thinking about how transparency can be extrapolated to its, its sort of ultimate conclusion, I would be remiss not to read science fiction author and, and theoretical physicist David Brin's book, The Transparent Society. It was published in 1998, and it's an argument for making society entirely transparent. The idea is that if society is entirely transparent, we're each 100% accountable to each other. And what he is essentially arguing for is to build the panopticon, uh, but make it participatory. So that anyone can climb, so the Panopticon being Bentham's old prison that had a tower in the middle where the watcher could always see all of the prisons in a circle around the tower. Now everybody gets a key to the tower. Anybody can go up and Brain says, when that happens, we will see, you know, all crime cease and people will start uh, acting altruistically because they know that there's the potential of the other's gaze all the time. And that's a, it, depending on where you are, I know I find that a very frightening future, but, but it's mm -hmm. a, very um, uh, interesting book and a good way to read up on on sort of uh, how transparency can transform societies entirely. Wow, I, I shall I shall I haven't read it, but I shall now. Um, I think you'll uh, enjoy it, and I, I think, think I, I think you'll disagree with it in so many interesting ways, and we can I, discuss it in yes. a later session. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, you can find this podcast as ever on uh, your website, Richard, which is www.regulate.tech. 
And we hope to have you with us uh, next week as well. Thank you so much. Bye.